Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. We had a great show today. Dr. Karina Ziedler was on to talk about a BC-specific COVID-19 science group. Stephanie Smith, president of the BC General Employees Union, was on about Life Labs, which is on strike right now. And Terry Mooring of the BC Teachers Federation had her say about the pitfalls of standardized testing in schools. And housing designer Bryn Davidson joined us for a conversation about the potential for six affordable homes being built on a single family lot. All that and more coming up on the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Let's get started. It's been 20 months since COVID-19 has wreaked havoc everywhere, but science has gotten us to a pretty incredible place, almost a record pace with studying this one thing. We've seen collaboration and research like never before. And yet my next guest says that while Health Minister Adrian Dix and Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry provide regular briefings, more information on the evolving science is needed. Joining me now is Dr. Karina Ziedler. She's a family physician in Vancouver, and she's part of a group called Protect Our Province BC. Hello, Dr. Ziedler. Hi, how are you? Nice to, thanks so much for having me. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the show. So why have a BC-specific COVID science group? Right, so um, we decided to start Protect Our Province BC uh, because we... Um, didn't think that our government was doing enough to protect uh, people in BC or one of our most um, essential services, our, our healthcare system. Um, you know, although there's been um, a lot, you know, although there's still a lot that we don't know about COVID, uh, certainly over you know these last almost two years, we've we've made uh, significant strides in our in our knowledge base uh but we're not we're not seeing some of those change, some of those um new scientific knowledge being uh consistently incorporated in the bc pandemic response um so we felt like there was there was a gap there uh, and we wanted to do these weekly briefings uh so that we could bring in uh experts from different fields uh to be able to uh talk about uh, some of that science uh so that people could be empowered to protect their families and and uh, and loved ones uh, and hopefully uh, there would be some some uh, a bit of pressure to um, uh, incorporate some of those things into the management so who's a part of protect our province right so we're uh, we're a pretty diverse group of uh, frontline healthcare providers so uh, physicians nurses uh, we also have health scientists and uh, policy analysts and uh, community uh, community organizers and what could protect our province do that we aren't doing already? Right. So the things that we um, are hoping to talk about uh, that we started talking about uh, last week in our first uh, briefing and that we're going to be addressing in the, the ones to come um, are that we believe we need more of a, a multi-layered approach. Uh, so the focus is very much right now on, on uh, vaccines, which are amazing and absolutely, uh, you know, everyone uh, should be encouraged to get vaccinated. Uh, but we need more than that. So, for example, um, one of the big things that we talked about last time at our last briefing was the fact that uh, SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, uh, is transmitted via aerosol instead of droplets. Um, which has important implications in terms of wanting to focus uh, more on uh, clean indoor air. So 
proper ventilation, air purification. Uh, it also means uh, really encouraging the use of high-quality uh, masks. Uh, and we also think uh, incorporating things like easy access to rapid, rapid testing, uh, continued contact tracing, and um, giving people the right kind of financial uh, support, so things like 10 days of paid sick time. So we already get these uh, briefings from the province regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, what are we missing out on in those briefings? Yeah, so what we are uh, wanting to do uh, is to talk about talk about the talk about the science and some of what we're what we're discovering uh, in you know very accessible language, uh, give people ideas of, okay, well, how does that science, uh, what's involved in that science in terms of day-to-day and what that would look like, uh, and then also get the chance to take uh, lots of questions from uh, the media and, and, and the public uh, in terms of making sure that, uh, you know, people are, are have a chance to ask questions about what we're, what we're talking about. Um, so we're hoping that it can be uh, pretty pretty interactive uh, and it's some different information uh, that we're that we're going to be talking about that we feel is lacking in the in the other briefings. I imagine that for you as a doctor when you're watching those briefings you've probably got a lot of questions and you probably wonder as I do uh, gosh how do they know what to include what not to include uh, how much information to share so that we're you know you're informing the public but you're not overwhelming them how mm-hmm. how would you navigate that with your group protect our province right so I think we have uh, uh, different mandates with our uh, you know with our with our briefings mm-hmm. uh, where we're wanting to uh, pick specific Topics and then explore those uh, explore those in, in depth. Uh, you know, yes, give some context in terms of what's going on in in BC with numbers and our situation that way. Uh, but we're not we're not uh, you know updating on new policy. Obviously, since mm-hmm. we're not policymakers, yes. uh, we're not having to review you know uh, the number of of uh, you know. ICU beds, sure. uh, they, they have access to uh, a bunch of information that we don't have access to. Mm-hmm. So you would be focusing on the science and the evolving science. That's right. And, uh, you know, how that science uh, can get translated uh, for people into everyday life so that they can, they can help protect themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds really important. Does your group need to be more legitimized by the province in order to matter? Does it need to be more promoted by the province? Well, you know, uh, it was interesting. Uh, Minister Dix did did get asked uh, about about our group, and he uh, said that they they welcome the extra the extra voices. Oh, so uh, they seem to they seem to uh, be encouraging us to to put on our briefings. Okay. In what ways do you think Protect Our Province can inform those are maybe who are maybe uh, vaccine hesitant or don't trust science and combat uh, COVID misinformation? Yeah, COVID misinformation is a, uh, I think, quite a uh, significant, a significant problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it comes to, to you know, vaccine hesitant people, uh, I'm a family physician, so uh, I've already had many conversations with people who are who are hesitant uh, to get vaccinated for all kinds of different reasons. What are you um, hearing? 
well, there are some people who have, uh, you know, chronic chronic illness and mm. uh, chronic pain, and they're worried that the vaccine, uh, you know, is going to is going to flare their their condition and make it more unbearable. Um, I've heard people talk about how, uh, you know, they the they have some concerns about. Uh, um, possible implications of the vaccines in pregnancy and worries about uh, that for themselves and you know that the, they take they just take conversations and sometimes they take multiple conversations uh, and you have to sort of build trust with people uh, for them to um, feel like they're able, they want to go and get vaccinated and for some people um, you know that that might never happen and so that's where we need to have uh, those multi-layered approaches uh, to help protect everybody. Mm-hmm. Dr. Ziedler, thank you so much for coming on our show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Have a great day. Well, last Tuesday, the BC General Employees Union, or BCGEU for short, issued a strike notice for their employees at Life Labs. Just yesterday, they had a big demonstration at the lab in Burnaby. So how is this going to be resolved? Here to talk about this is Stephanie Smith, and she joins us on the line. Hello, Stephanie. Hi, good morning. Good morning to you. Stephanie Smith is joining us. She is the BC General Employees Union president. So tell us about the road, Stephanie, that led to Life Lab strike. How long did negotiations last before the BCGEU called a strike? Yes. Oh, thank you so much. Um, so we began bargaining in April of this year. Um, the collective agreement expired on March 31st. And, um, you know, I mean, it was it was a rough road from the start. This was uh, an employer who originally came to the table uh, who wanted to uh, reduce sick time during the middle of a pandemic. And so that sort of set the tone off a little bit. Um, and in July, uh, when things were not going any better, we took a strike vote and it was overwhelmingly in favor. 98% of our membership voted in favor of a strike. Uh, we then continued negotiations, went to mediation and hoped that with the help of a mediator, we would be able to get a deal. That didn't happen. And so, as you said, on October 19th, we issued 72-hour strike notice. And at 7 p.m. on Friday, October 22nd, we were in a legal position to strike. Okay. And yesterday there was a demonstration at the Burnaby Reference Lab. Um, in what ways do you think that sent a message to the province? Yeah, it was a it was a wonderful wonderful rally. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to attend, but our treasurer Paul Finch was there, and uh, there were members, there were members of the public, there were you know patients from Life Labs that were there supporting our members, and really that rally just um, was a message that this is a very solidified group. This is a group that knows their worth. They play an incredibly vital role in BC's healthcare system, and that they want to see their employer, who is a for-profit company across Canada, they want to see that employer come to the table with an offer of a deal that recognizes their contribution to our healthcare system. Yeah, can you tell us what some of the issues are? Well, Life Labs workers do uh, pretty much exactly the same work as hospital labs do, um, and those that work within the public healthcare system. And um, our members are paid on average 45 to 13.5% less. 
So that wage disparity was already causing staffing issues in Life Labs even before the pandemic. Um, the pandemic, of course, has really, really exacerbated the problem. Um, I myself am a Life Labs user uh, for a treatment program that I'm on, and every week I go in there and I see just how you know, rushed they are and, and providing services to British Columbians. They do the majority of outpatient testing. And, um, yeah, so there's even been a couple of sites on the island that needed to close because of staffing issues. So wages, huge piece of it, benefits. Um, we'd like to see these members enrolled in a targeted benefit pension plan so that they can retire with dignity when they've done their work. Okay, you mentioned staffing issues. What's happening with the staff? Well, I mean, if, if you can, you know, um, because there are shortages in the healthcare system right across the system, if you had a choice between working in a hospital lab, um, getting wages, as I said, four and a half to 13 and a half percent higher than what you're getting in the, in the life labs, plus you get a, you know, very good pension plan, really good benefits, why would you stay in life labs? And so, you know, we know not every round of bargaining you're going to get exactly where you want to get. Mm -hmm. But, you know, um, we need to see that the employer wants to really take those steps to closing that gap between what our members make in working for a private company and members in the public health care system make. And about these strikes, um, those who plan on taking COVID tests, are they going to be affected? Well, we negotiated essential service orders with the employer, so um, there are essential service orders, which will mean that certain essential services will be maintained throughout the duration of any job action. Um, also, uh, we represent about 94 of the uh, 130 life labs, so not all life labs are unionized. And of course, the the public healthcare labs will not be impacted at all. We did set up a microsite for the public. It's lifelabs.bcgu.ca, and people can go there, and they will see an up-to-date list of which, if any, of the life labs are impacted by job action. Okay. How much of a role did COVID-19 play in taking job action? Well, I mean, you know, deciding to action a strike vote is never, ever easy. Um, but again, like a 98% vote shows that uh, this is a very, very solid group of working people. Um, they're really showing solidarity with each other. And as I said, they know their worth. Um, and they want to see a deal that recognizes their their responsibility and all of the additional duties and time that that they're putting in to supporting British Columbians during this global pandemic. Yeah, what are workers saying about the workload during COVID times? Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, I do have conversations when I'm there, and um, they're tired. They're very tired. It's uh, There's been a lot of overtime. Um, as I said, there have been staffing shortages. I mean, we've heard anecdotally of um, even with an appointment system, you know, patients or clients waiting for three hours. Um, you know, it, it's been very, very difficult. It's been very difficult for everyone, I think, in BC this pandemic and uh, for healthcare workers, absolutely. And do you see the union escalating the job action soon? 
Well, I mean, again, our our strike committee and our membership, they wanted to, you know, really try and mitigate as much disruption to the public as possible. So there was the big rally yesterday, and a thank you again to everybody who came out to support that. And um, what they're wanting to do is a, a, an overtime ban and a work to rule, while, of course, always maintaining those essential service orders. So this gives a window of opportunity for the employer and us to meet at any time, any time the door is open to do that and try and come to a fair deal. Okay, well, thank you, Stephanie Smith, for being with us this morning. Thank you so very much for having me. Well, the Standardized Foundation Skills Assessment Test, or the FSA test, has been running for a long time. According to the BC Teacher Federation, the tests are not a required part of the BC curriculum. However, the government still enforces these tests. Here to weigh in on the controversial FSA test is Terry Mooring, the president of BC Teachers Federation. Hello, Terry. Hello. Good morning to you. So for those who are unfamiliar with the testing in schools in our province, can you explain what the FSA test is? Sure. The Foundation Skills Assessment Test is a test that's given to grades 4 and 7 uh, every year. Um, they are a standardized uh, test. And we believe, you know, one of the key problems is that the tests aren't used for their actual original intended purpose. Um, rather, the results are misused by outside groups um, to rank schools. And I would also note this has not always been the case. When the FSAs were first introduced, um, the results were not misused. Um, and it was, you know, uh, not a bad system-wide check of how the curriculum has been implemented in BC schools. Okay, so what happened? How did, it, uh, how did the FSA become a tool for think tanks to rank schools? So along the way, a few things happened. One was that there was a political decision to send home results with uh, children, individual results. And the FSAs were actually never intended to assess individual children. They were really intended as a system-wide check to see generally how groups of children are doing in in the system Mm -hmm. and how um, generally, you know, BC students were, were functioning. Um, what, what sending the results home with children did two things. One was it really gave a, an impression that somehow the FSAs perhaps were more significant or more objective than classroom assessments, and that's not accurate. And the other thing that it did is it allowed outside groups to capture that data um, and use it to rank schools, which is very destructive and has been happening for many years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've uh, gotten stuck in that loop when I first learned about what the Fraser Institute was and how it ranked schools, and then I visited those schools, and it just all seemed kind of arbitrary to me. You've said that the tests disproportionately affect students in low-income and racialized communities. How so? Well, in, in terms of those schools, um, you know, they, they just tend to be um, schools in lower socioeconomic um, areas of the province, and I'm very much generalizing now, but this is true. Um, and they, you know, the students um, don't necessarily rank very well in the test for, for a variety of reasons, including, you know, these schools often um, provide breakfast and lunch for children, um, and they, they often do a lot of really fantastic work with, with children that are really vulnerable. 
um, as opposed to, you know, other schools that are elite private schools where um, families spend a lot of money to send their children there, Mm -hmm. where they don't need to take all children. Of course, public schools are open to all children that come through the doors. That is not the case, in particular with elite private schools. Mm -hmm. And so you're really um, comparing apples and oranges in some ways. And predictably, the elite private schools always score very well on the Fraser Institute rankings and prep for the test and do all sorts of things like that. Um, And so it can really uh, undermine um, public education. And that's the intended purpose of ranking schools, I will add, Mm -hmm. is to undermine public education and to sort of demonstrate that the private sector can do it better. We we in no way believe that. And we also in no way believe that schools that rank low on the Fraser Institute, um, on the uh, uh, FSAs, I should say, are actually schools that aren't doing very well. Right. Um, they, they, are, they are schools that, you know, that where children are being very successful. Um, but, you know, we take children from where they are when they enter our doors, uh, and we take them along a continuum. And um, I, in many times, you know, reporters have visited schools as the rank low and have, you know, really marveled at how amazing and caring um, and and what good work they do with children. So it really is arbitrary, as you said, um, and meaningless, but unfortunately misused by, you know, realtors, by others who, yes. you know, promote um, this way of assessing schools, which is, you know, really unfortunate. This sounds like a systemic issue. What's changed in what we've learned about learning since the FSA test was designed? Well, we, we've learned a lot. Um, we also, the BCTF also has no um, real particular concerns around doing system-wide checks of, of how groups are doing. It's really important that we have data to see how Aboriginal students are doing, to see how children in care are doing, to see how you know, groups of children within our system, racialized children, um, are doing. It is important that we gather this kind of data um, but it needs to be handled um, in a way that uh, is ethical, um, for one. So, in other words, um, government has a responsibility to make sure that the information they're gathering is not misused. Um, and, the, and the other is that once gaps are identified, there needs to be a plan to resource and fill those gaps. And so one of the big concerns we also have is just that. Um, you know, uh, schools that are demonstrating that they're not doing as well on the test, nothing happens in terms of supporting those schools. Um, those schools don't get additional learning support teacher time. They don't get additional counseling time if that's required. Like there just isn't a system in place where those schools get additional resources in order to support them. What happens instead is gaps are simply identified and that's very problematic. So the gaps are identified. Uh, some of the data you're saying is is misused. Why does our society have, in general, kind of an obsession with measuring success in this way? Why do we still try and instill this outdated kind of thinking on students when they're so young? Well, it, it's true. And um, I think what happens is, you know, that it's uh, once a number is identified or a letter grade or something like that, um, there's an assumption made um, that it's objective, that somehow it carries more value than it actually does. The, um, the uh, foundation skills assessment test is a much less specific test about how an individual child is doing 
than classroom teachers' assessments. So classroom teachers have very rich um, assessment practices. They, um, they, they assess children both um, formally and informally uh, in a variety of settings. They know if a child is having a bad day, that that's a day that they probably shouldn't do a formalized assessment, for example. Yeah. And there's a flexibility to be able to do that, to really adjust to, you know, the needs of individual children in the classroom setting. Um, however, with the, with the um, Foundation for those assessments, um, it's a specific period of time. Mm-hmm. There is not very much flexibility in that. Oftentimes, and this is one of the other reasons why children in um, lower socioeconomic areas tend not to do as well, is that they're very formalized and can be very foreign to students as well um, that haven't had that type of assessment before. Mm -hmm. And so it sort of adds to the stresses around doing a test. They're also very lengthy and and they don't need to be. Mm -hmm. So these are a lot of the issues that we identified in 2014 when we started having serious conversations with government about the problems with the FSAs. And the education partners came together and agreed that there were uh, too many problems with the FSAs to continue. Thank you for shedding light on that for us. No problem. Thanks for having me. You may have caught uh, the Mike Smith show last Friday when we had the mayor of Vancouver, Kennedy Stewart, on, and he was talking about his pitch to have six affordable homes on a single family lot. Well, our next guest is a designer and co-founder of Lane Fab Design Build, Bryn Davidson. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us, Bryn. So what's your reaction to Mayor Stewart's pitch to allow six affordable homes on a single family lot? Well, it's something that many of us have been talking about for years and years and years. It seemed like the the natural evolution of where the city needed to be going. And so after years of of the previous council not doing anything with single family, I I think it's good that we're finally talking about it. So do you think that the laneway homes are a solution to the housing crisis in Vancouver? Yeah, I I think the important thing is that what he's talking about is different than just a laneway house. Um, We built the first laneway house in the city over a decade ago, Mm -hmm. and they've been an important tool. But this is talking about doing, you know, a fourplex or a sixplex, Mm -hmm. um, which is which is doesn't necessarily look that different, but is quite different than just building a laneway house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a previous uh, a kind of similar plan was rejected by council back in 2020. And one of the reasons was uh, lack of affordability for low-income and middle-income earners in that solution there. So if that's the case, then what's the solution? <laughs> I think there there is lots, there there is more opportunity for affordability. And the main thing is that it's, it's not going to be cheap housing. It's still going to be, it's still Vancouver. And it's yes. still... You know, it's not going to be cheap, but it is going to be far more affordable than the single-family houses. The, we, we put all these questions towards these, these multifamily projects, but we never ask that question of the, the giant mansions that are going up that have the least affordability imaginable. So we have nowhere to go but up, and the advantage of doing development on a single lot is that um, it's not just developers buying up properties. You can have existing owners who can develop their own property using, you know, maybe they bought that land in 1970. Mm-hmm. And so their affordability performer, or their, their calculation is quite different. Um, and this is always the power of the laneway house program mm-hmm. is that existing owners could develop on their own property with no land cost. 
Mm. And so I think what we're trying to see with this type of proposal is to expand the, the value of the Lane House program to, to far more people. So it's not just the existing owners that are getting the benefit. Yeah. Admittedly, I have seen some terrific uh, laneway houses that just like aesthetically, they they look fantastic. But I've also seen some real hodgepodge uh, Frankenstein-y situations <laughs> from a design perspective. Uh, what challenges spring to mind about creating that many units, like say up to six units on a single family home lot? Well, I, you know, from the aesthetic point of view, if, if we have a fine green city where you have lots of houses with small frontages and they're all different. If you've got some fantastic ones mixed in with some dogs, I think that's totally fine. That's how a city works. We shouldn't be like going to great efforts to make everything perfectly homogenized and, and pretty according to some rules. But I do think that there is a real opportunity to create multifamily housing that's good family-sized housing, low-carbon housing within existing walkable neighborhoods, and to do it across the city, so not just in certain neighborhoods, but to do it in every neighborhood. And I think that's, that's the real opportunity here. Mm-hmm. So what can you uh, share with us as a designer about how to make these homes uh, more affordable? Well, I think um, like the challenge with laneway houses is that they are pretty expensive per square foot. Yeah. So the more, if we can put four units into a, a single building, like a fourplex, that is more affordable than doing a house with a detached laneway house. Mm-hmm. Um, likewise, if we can build at grade, you know, if we can do three stories or, you know, at grade, then we don't have to dig this big old basement and put a bunch of embodied, you know, energy and everything else into it. Um, we just need a little bit of extra height to do that. And then those would also be more wheelchair accessible than what you currently get with single family houses. So I think there's there's lots of opportunity to do family size, zero carbon, more accessible more affordable. Um, we just have to get past the idea that that single family is the only thing that can be done or should ever be done in these neighborhoods. Well, you nailed it right there. What is up with our um, kind of refusal to be more flexible in our thinking around housing there? Uh, I mean, North America, we have 100 years of history of, of being very exclusionary mm. with our zoning practices. You know, back in the 1920s, it was about excluding people based on race. Mm-hmm. More recently, it's about keeping, you know, people who aren't as rich out of neighborhoods. Um, and mm-hmm. often it's done in the guise of, of neighborhood character. Right. Um, I think if we, the advantage of something like the Laneway House program was that you had little projects sprinkled all around the city in the rich neighborhoods, the poor neighborhoods. And the neighborhoods didn't really change entirely. You just had them sprinkled all over the place. And so that's the difference between a citywide zoning policy versus a pocket or, or kind of a corridor rezoning. A lot of people will look at Canby Corridor um, as this kind of example of, oh, this is the problem with rezoning. But that's 100% different than what we saw with the Laneway House program, which was uh, distributed across the whole city. So I think once people in these neighborhoods realize that this gives them an opportunity to downsize. It gives the, their kids an opportunity to actually move back into their neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of these single-family neighborhoods where we're losing population could all of a sudden be bustling, vibrant places again and not be all that different, frankly. Mm-hmm. What do you see in terms of your customers who do go for the laneway option? What's the, what are their backgrounds like? Yeah, I mean, for us, because we do kind of a higher-end custom uh, laneway house and house, um, we are often doing multi-generational projects. 
So we are building for the young couple building on their parents' backyard or for the the baby boomer couple who want to downsize in place and then rent out their main house or give the main house to the kids. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we get lots and lots of requests from groups of young people, from families. Everybody's wanting to have, you know, better ground-oriented family-sized options in these nice neighborhoods, you know, and (laughs) where it's quiet and there's no pollution. Like it's, what we do currently is we, we pack all of the renters and lower income folks on the, the busy corridors where there's terrible air pollution and noise pollution. And, and we've seen in recent research about how bad that is for people. Mm-hmm. Do you know what kind of uh, restrictions you would face, like, for example, with like the height, if this pitch to allow six affordable homes on a single family lot goes through? Yeah, it would be a bit higher. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe they're five, maybe they're 10 feet higher okay. than, than the house next door. But what I say is, you know, they're not, they're not taller than the adjacent street trees. So, you know, you're not building a tower that's sticking up above the trees. It's not shadowing more than the trees are already. It really can fit into the neighborhood quite nicely. Um, if you walk around City Hall in Vancouver, there's an area, a neighborhood there where there's a real mix of character homes and, and older apartment buildings. And that, that kind of fine-grained mix can really work just fine. Um, I think people just need to kind of get get past this idea that, um, there should be parts of the city where it's just single family. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an idea that you know needs to go away like smoking on airplanes did. <laughs> hey, Bryn Davidson, thank you so much for being with us. That was a really interesting conversation. Happy to chat anytime. Thanks for hosting. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.